Okay, so hello everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Chatter. Uh, today I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Rakib Esan, um, author of the brand new book, um, Beyond Grievance, What the Left Gets Wrong About Ethnic Minorities. So ma'am, welcome to the show. No, thank you for having me, Josh. How have you been? Yeah, I'm pretty good. Like I said, I just, um, I'd love to have had the book. Oh, here it is. I'd love, <laughs> this is the book. Um, just finished it last night for anyone that wants to get it. I'll put the link in the description below. Um, and yeah, as I was saying before we started, I thought it was um, a fantastic piece of, of literature and a really, really in-depth look at the way that our political conversation gets sort of race wrong, especially in mm. Britain. So um, maybe before we start, like go deeper into it, do you want to give people like a, a thesis of the book or like 60 seconds about what it's about? No, sure. Um, so in terms of the book, I think one thing I really wanted to achieve with the book, Josh, was challenge what I consider to be quite problematic uh, liberal left narratives surrounding race and identity in the UK. Uh, all too often, I think there are doom and gloom narratives when it comes to the description of life uh, for ethnic and racial minorities living in the UK. So one thing I really wanted to do with the book is to inform people that the realities on the ground are far more positive than what they've been told by um, various elements of the mainstream media, especially the more progressive leaning elements of the media. But the, the book also challenges uh, right wing conservative commentators in terms of their views on ethnic and racial minorities. And, and the central point that I really make with the book is that our country, for all its flaws, is a relatively successful multiracial democracy and is a country where you see multiple ethnic and racial minorities now outperforming the white British mainstream on a range of social and economic metrics. So when we're looking at those kind of disparities, Josh, uh, OK, we can have a discussion about racial discrimination, but disparities do not necessarily equal discrimination. There's a variety of social cultural and economic factors at play when you're looking at those disparities and one that one that i really focus on in the book and i'm sure we'll talk about it later on is family structure so what i want to see is a more a more effective social policy which really gets down to the nitty-gritty of why certain groups are performing better than others in modern day britain Mm. Yeah, I mean, some some of the the breakdowns, like you said, we'll get into it, but they they mm. were really fascinating to me. Um, so I guess that the place that I wanted to start is is where where people have got that this idea from that that Britain is this like fundamentally and maybe almost exceptionally racist place, especially compared to 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 Europe and the EU. Like it was mm. a, a big part of the Brexit debate. And and some of the stats actually that you quote um early in the book, I just wanted to, to highlight to people were um some of the sure. the majority non-white um parts of the country um that voted majority to leave the United to uh, to leave the European Union. So um Hounslow mm. um voted sixty three point four percent um in favour of yeah, Brexit. Yeah that's specifically Austerly and Spring Grove Ward in Hounslow, okay. which has a very sort of notable Indian origin presence. Okay. Interesting. Um and then the Luton voted fifty six point five percent. Yeah. Um, to leave, uh, Sly voted fifty four point three percent to leave, and 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 you quoted a whole bunch of other ones. I don't want to mm. like spend the whole time listing stats, but um, like, wh where do you think this idea came from? Generally, that that Britain it, and the Brexit vote was a fundamentally sort of racist endeavor. 
No, I, I think that firstly, there were many mainstream commentators who were utterly shocked by the result. It wasn't what they were expecting at all. And truthfully, I wasn't so uh, surprised, uh, as we've already uh, said, that my hometown of uh, Luton voted to leave the European Union. Uh, but, but I think what we saw in the, in the aftermath of the, of the referendum on EU membership were some very simplistic and, in my view, quite divisive explanations for the result, Josh. Uh, people describing it as a product of white nostalgia. Um, this this was the enterprise of bigoted reactionary throwbacks in the in the provinces, and 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 as you've already uh, alluded to, the the, the pitch is far more um, complex uh, than that. Uh, I, I've made the point that I think one of the driving factors when you look at ethnic minority euroscepticism if you, if you can call it that more broadly mm -hmm. uh, th there was that perception that you know predominantly white europeans were the beneficiaries of preferential treatment under our immigration system which was wedded to the eu freedom of movement principle uh, i also made this point in the book that many um, first generation migrants coming from uh, the indian subcontinent for example or parts of africa uh, they may have a very strong British identity, they may have attachments to their country of origin and also their faith, and faith is also something that I talk about in the book, but there's not really space for that European identity. They weren't um, socialised um, under European institutions, it was British institutions. And there is ultimately, when it comes to integration, for example, is about being integrated into British civic life, not European civic life. So I think those are the kind of dynamics that I really wanted to highlight uh, in the book. But as as you say, I think that m many of the explanations for why Brexit um, took place, you saw journalists based in, based in London looking for these explanations by going to working men's clubs in northern England or going to pubs in the provincial Midlands. If they wanted to talk to a good number of Brexit voters, they could have just gone to the Mondays and Goodwaras in West London. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that's maybe something that, that people miss. Um, and, and what you said about, about the British, uh, about their sort of attachment to British institutions and British national identity was another thing that I, I still haven't fully wrapped my head around. And one of the stats, again, that, that you, you quote is that um, the the percentage of people basically that, that consider their British national identity to be, to be important to them is um, mm. amongst um, like, quote unquote, white voters is 63%. Um, versus non-white voters, which is sixty-eight percent, meaning that that the idea that that Brexit was all about sort of white nostalgia is just mm. thrown out the window for me. I was just like, what? I I actually couldn't couldn't quite comprehend that that was that was the case. That that there's so many um, people of minority background that are so attached mm. to the British identity, and it's actually quite um, it it makes me quite optimistic for the future mm. of the country rather than than pessimistic you know no absolutely i think i, th I think there's plenty of reasons um to be optimistic uh, about our multiracial democracy and uh, of course uh, i wouldn't be the business of looking at my own country through rose tinted spectacles and we could talk about some of the problems as well over the course of the conversation i'm sure mm. we will uh but i think when you look at those figures non-white versus white I think there's there's a variety of factors at play. The reality is there are um, there are white British people, for example, they may be more attached to their English identity 
their Welsh identity or their Scottish identity. So, so their home nation identity, essentially, more than their British identity. That's a possibility. But there is that kind of anti-British metropolitan intellectualism. Intellectualism, you know, I'm really stretching. I'm stretching that term there in that context where it's just people, they have, a, they have a fundamentally warped view of their own country. Uh, people in the white British mainstream, you can call them liberal left. Um, but there are there's still there are still uh, sensible actors on the liberal left. But what I'm talking about here are people who who just it's almost like they, they've convinced themselves that as as you said you described it quite well this British exceptionalism in terms of being an exceptionally racist society, which is simply not the case. There's a there's a there's a wealth of literature, Josh, which shows that when it comes to having tolerant attitudes towards outgroupers, people maybe of a different ethnic, racial, or religious background ground and um, the UK fares pretty well on, the, on those kind of indicators especially compared to a number of countries in, in the European Union when it comes to providing anti-discrimination protections for example on the grounds of race ethnicity and religion uh, post-Brexit Britain outperforms a, a string of EU member states France Germany the Netherlands Spain and Italy so I, I, I just don't see this, you know, this um, caricature of Britain being a fundamentally racist hellscape, it, 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 it's simply not rooted in reality. And I suspect that many ethnic minority citizens who live in the UK have a very similar view. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, that definitely seems to be the case. And uh, what <laughs> the thing that I was I was actually talking to a friend about the other day was that we have... Um, Rishi Sunak as our prime minister, mm. um, I believe he's a Punjabi um, descendant. Yeah, Punjabi Hindu origin, yeah. Yeah. Um, we had uh, Priti Patel as our home secretary. We then had Suella Braverman. We've had Sajid Javid in the, the treasury. Um, and I was very proud to be from a country where nobody mentioned the race of these people, mm. just the, you know, the <laughs> arguably horrifying policies that they were trying to put into place. But... I feel like in like say if you'd had that those characters in mm. America in those positions of power there would have been a completely different conversation surrounding um, their background and ethnicity and that just I didn't see it being discussed at all in in from by anyone there was nobody saying oh this is awful like everyone was just like well we don't care it's it's about their policies no, absolutely and I think another individual we can mention is the former Chancellor of the Exchequer Quasi Porteng. Um, as well of, of Ghanaian uh, heritage. And, and I think it really shows how we've progressed as, as a multiracial democracy that people either see ethnic minority individuals reaching high positions of public office, the great offices of state, they either see that as a positive development or to be blunt, Josh, they, they just, they really don't care. It's more about policy delivery and how they perform um, in, in their respective roles. And I, th I think that in that sense, the UK is, uh, is far more advanced than other European countries. There's still a debate within the Christian Democrats in Germany, for example, in terms of how would they feel if they had a Muslim leader or if they had um, a, a multiple Muslims in, in relatively high positions within the party. Now, I, th I think that the Conservative Party, now I wouldn't say that they've completely sorted out um, the problem of anti-Muslim prejudice within the party, but I, I'll definitely say that there's a more accepting attitude um, within the Conservative Party more generally when it comes to being led 
by a non-white individual, a non-Christian individual as well, in the case of Rishi Sunak. Mm. Um, as you said, you mentioned Sajid Javid. He has a Muslim background. He's had uh, very important roles um, under this uh, under this period of Tory-led rule. Uh, and I think that it shows that compared to its other centre-right counterparts, the Tory party, for all its flaws, and has many flaws, and I talk about that in the book, I think that when it comes to matters of race relations, racial and ethnic representation um, within the party in relatively high positions, I think that it has progressed much further than many of its centre-right counterparts um, across much of Europe. Mm. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I definitely, definitely agree. Um, so one of the things you talk about in the book are the sort of values of uh, faith, family and mm. flag, which which are central to to the, the have often been central to just British identity generally and, sure. and is like very central to to the, the lives of a lot of people from from minority background. And um, I, I'm I'm curious as to why those values are seen by at least by i'd say some in the mainstream press as being like white values or 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 like british white <laughs> values it, it 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 yeah it strains credulity for me but why do you think that's become the the sort of accepted narrative i think in terms of the sort of narrative setting we see on certain elements um within the contemporary british left that there is that focus on racial identity and I, there, there are, in, in my view, this is myth peddling, um, Josh, in my view, that, you know, if, if Labour, for example, were to embrace uh, more patriotic expressions, that that would alienate racial and ethnic minorities en masse. That's simply not the case, as we've talked about already, the high rates of British identification within racial and ethnic um, minorities. And also within the British Muslim population, which all too often gets portrayed as this disaffected monolithic block, um, which is marginalised in British society. Uh, three in four British Muslims, according to a recent study by Crest Advisory, uh, said that they felt that Britain is a good place to live as a Muslim. And I, I tell people that, Josh, and they're, they're genuinely shocked by it. And you have to ask why, because that's probably down to um, much of what's reported about British Muslims more generally by, by the, the mainstream media. So, and, and I think that you look at that traditional triad, which I talk about a great deal in the book, faith, family and flag. Um, listen, I, I'm someone, I have a counter-extremism background and I know full well how religion is exploited and taken advantage of to pursue extremist aims but i do talk about that maybe it's worth cultivating a shared appreciation of faith how it can be a source of optimism and resilience in modern day britain considering you know during the covid 19 pandemic you know how, you know when it comes to tackling those challenges in life that you know, that sort of you know using faith almost as, as that source of inspiration and strength and also how it relates to a sense of community family values and there's no harm in the left at least engaging with those points a little bit more. Um, and, and I talk a great deal about the importance of the family. And, and I do think that there's, there's um, in my view, quite significant elements of the left. They're obsessed with racial identity when it comes to looking at a range of social and economic outcomes. When I think one of the most important factors when you look at those social and economic factors um or rather those social and economic outcomes is family structure 
what's the what, what, what's the kind of culture which is cultivated in the household what are the main values um promoted in the home i i, I think we need to focus more on that uh, I'll give you I'll give you one um, particular stat, which, which still shocks people, Josh, is that when you're looking at the rate of lone parent households within a particular ethnic group for children aged up to 15 years, for children of Indian origin, it's 6%. Mm -hmm. 6% live in lone parent households. For their peers of Black Caribbean heritage, it goes all the way up to 63%. That, 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 that's a remarkable difference. And I think that if if... If, if there are social justice activists on the left who truly care about young black lives in modern day Britain, I think they should just talk a little bit more about family stability and the importance of having a responsible male role model that earns money in a proper and legitimate way. How important that kind of figure is in the lives of young lads. I think that's very important and doesn't get talked about enough. Yeah, no, I... I... I think you're you're a hundred percent speaking to something there. So, like, what do you think then is the 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 driving force behind the, like that sort of disparity? Like, what's what's going on there that that's causing this this? Yeah, it's six percent versus sixty three percent. Now, a, a lot of people when they're looking at that sixty three percent figure within um, Black uh, Caribbean communities, people talk about housing. Uh, racial discrimination, especially in the, in, in the labor market. Now, I wouldn't, uh, now being someone who I traditionally associate uh, myself with the left, I, I would not trivialize those factors at all. But also make the point that those are also problems, for example, for British Bangladeshis living uh, in the UK. And perhaps they may have the added problem of suffering anti Muslim prejudice. M most people of Black Caribbean origin are not Muslim. Uh, so, so I think we really need to talk about people's attitudes towards the family, uh, also attitudes towards uh, family building. Um, to what extent do they value marriage as an institution, Josh? I think that's quite important. And what are the cultural attitudes towards out of wedlock births, for example? You know, to what extent would someone um, be against that? you know, as a value or rather how comfortable would they be with that? Um, and, 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 and how would a local community perhaps respond to that if someone was to have children outside of marriage? I think there's all that there's a variety of cultural factors at play. But one thing we do know is that one of the driving factors behind high rates of lone parent households is out of wedlock births. Because and I'm not in the business of romanticizing marriage as an institution, but more times than not, and compared to um, non-marital arrangements, marriage can be an institution that provides a degree of stability and security, especially for young people as they're growing up. Mm. Yeah, actually, I've got one of the stats you, you cite in the mm. book here is that 53% um, of cohabiting parents um, are likely to break up before the child is, is five years old, mm. um, whereas that's that drops to fifteen percent when the parents are married, which is which I think really underlines your point about about the the stability that it provides. It's it's, and I think I think it kind of also dismisses some of the ideas that people view marriage as like a frivolous institution these days. It kind of like speaks to the idea that once they've made that kind of commitment, mm. however real they may see that as like you know some people think it's like a piece of paper but it's it's something mm. that clearly like drives people to desire to stay together for whatever reason that might be 
No, absolutely. And I think we, we have to sort of talk about cultural attitudes towards marriage in terms of how people view it um, as an institution. Um, for me, th 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 there's a great deal of self-sacrifice involved uh, in getting married. And, and I think that, of course, you, you want to talk about what do I get out of getting married ultimately? Um, but you also have to think about wh what would I like to give to my marriage as well? Um, and there has to be, the, 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 the reality is <laughs> your degree of individual freedom may well be become more restricted um, in, 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 in the post-marriage world, you could say, in your own post-marriage uh, post um, life. And, and, and I think that, you know, that there, is, has to, there has to be that understanding that, you know, more individualistic mindsets are not necessarily compatible with the maintenance of a healthy and stable marriage. I think that's the truth of it. And I think perhaps in ethnic and racial groups, which maybe have more collectivistic mindsets, and they have that, you know, valuing marriage as an institution, which does require a degree of self-sacrifice, perhaps that contributes to higher rates of family stability, lower rates of lone parent households, compared to other groups who may, you know, groups which may be more secularized and may not have those same views on marriage as an institution, or perhaps their view of marriage is more about what they can get out of the marriage. So it's a more of an individualistic approach to marriage. Mm. So like, the other thing you've mentioned there is is faith, which, which uh, mm. sort of like the marriage and faith tend to be sort of at least somewhat intertwined given the the sort of implications of, of getting married like in a in a church or a mosque or mm. um wherever it might be um humanist ceremony as i was at recently uh, was very nice um so sure it was yeah it was yeah well i mean it's just it's about your friends standing up you know together and saying they're going to commit to each other rather than the actual institution in which it's in i think and mm. for a lot of people but um you you kind of talk about the what what faith can do for people a lot in the book as well and and sort of how it affects their their outlook on life um like uh, another one of the sort of stats that blew me away in the book is the life satisfaction for people who categorize their faith as, as very important in their life is is 60 percent whereas um who those who would say religion's not important important to them drops to 30 percent. so that's half as many people think like are satisfied with their life without without religion in it and uh, why do you think the the, the discussion surrounding mm. this is is just not a part of our, our conversation well I, I think that if you're looking at the recent census data we become a rapidly secularized society josh there's no two ways about that i think in um in 2001 i think over seven in ten people identified as christian I think now that's that, that's gone down to uh, around forty six percent. Wow! So, so so it's quite a significant drop. Um, but we become a more secular society. We also become a more diverse society, and there have been a growth of particular re religious groups such as um, Muslims as a, as a proportion of the wider society. And 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 I do think that there are elements of the left who, who have an uncomfortable relationship with faith. Uh, if truth be told and I, I think here it's more about how you connect faith to values you know surrounding the family community and, and there's a wealth of literature now which suggests which very much shows that compared to 
people who may not necessarily value their religious identity or they may not be of faith. Religious people do tend to be happier. They tend to be happier. They tend to be more satisfied with their life. And those are also factors which are quite important when it comes to being productive uh, in life. As you know, in the country, we've had a real productivity crisis. And <clears throat> I think that we need to look at how faith relates to well-being, happiness, life satisfaction, sense of belonging, um, having a sense of purpose in life as well. Um, because that's very important to live a very productive, fulfilling and efficient life um, as well. And, and ultimately, I'm in the business that we, we need to be a productive nation. And, and I think that it's worth at least having that debate in terms of how faith feeds in, how faith um, relates to well-being and how that in turn um, feeds into um, concepts of economic productivity uh, as well. Uh, so I think there's no harm in having that discussion, but I do think that that, that there are many activists uh, on the left. They have a very, um, it's almost a militant secularism in a sense. They have a very uncomfortable relationship with faith. And now, of course, I wouldn't romanticize the role of faith in society, but equally, I think that there's there's too many people on the left who believe that faith does more harm than good in society. And I would I would question that. Mm. Yeah, I had, I had a discussion with um, Esther Kreku a couple of months ago about about religion and sort of its its impact upon people. Although we we sort of came to the conclusion that people, if they don't have like a typical religion or would define themselves as atheist or agnostic, that mm. something becomes their new god. You know, whether mm. it, it's um, their political ideology or uh, in on either side of the you know either side of the spectrum and um i think some of the stats you've cited there suggest that that doesn't give them the same level of life satisfaction even if they've replaced like faith or religion in their life with mm. something that they you know worship with an equal fervor um and you you actually pointed out that that this can be like really damaging to trying to build a nation that's like coherent mm. and together and sort of un, like has a, a set of underlying values that we all share and, um, i just wanted to quote quote you at you um you said uh <laughs> radical ideologues uh political islamists far-right nativists and hard-left identitarians thrive in the absence of attachments to shared inclusive identities rooted in nationhood mm. so like when we when we lack these things it seems that bad actors will sweep in in an attempt mm. um, from either side of the political spectrum to subsume Absolutely. that, you know? Absolutely. And, and I, I, I make no apologies for promoting uh, a sort of robust form of civic nationalism. And I think you need that in order to tie um, a diversity of groups together in a modern society such as ours. Now, I'm not saying that every single person has to adopt a particular faith overnight, of course not. But I do think that, you know, the, the sense of, you know, the faith, family and flag, that traditional tribe that we were referring to, that we referred to earlier. And I think that, you know, when it comes to, for example, talking about a sense of community, that doesn't necessarily be, doesn't necessarily have to be restricted to your own racial, ethnic or religious group. I, I live in a very diverse uh, local community and I get along with, um, many people who do not share my racial, ethnic and religious background. 
Um, that'd be the case for many friendship groups across my hometown of Luton. It's a very hyper diverse part of the country. And, and, and I think that's, that's what I'm referring to really when I talk about you know, that importance of mutual respect social trust which cuts across different groups and and i think that all too often we have that there's been an over celebration of difference and, and i think that the difference and diversity it, it should be celebrated only if you have a sort of a sort of common moral cultural standard to tie that diversity together and i think that the one thing the one cause that the left cannot give up on is social solidarity. I think it's very important for left-wing politics more generally. And I just think that if there's an obsession with tribal identity politics, whether that's based on race, um, sex, uh, we've seen radical transgenderism really gain a foothold um, on the British left. And I think that the, a, a real problem here is that there's an importation of a very aggressive racial identity politics from the United States a relatively youthful experiment in my view, which is still struggling to get the grips uh, with the legacy of slavery and segregation. And I think that if you want to talk about an anti-racist politics, it has to be one that's respectful and understanding of British history and heritage and focuses more on practical action as opposed to um, importing concepts such as safe spaces, for example, from the United States, which in my view, is almost a kind of a, a form of new age segregation, which I don't want to see in the UK in any way, shape or form. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's always baffled me that we, we import so many of these political um, terms and, and causes mm. um, from America. Like, I guess it's it's because sort of culturally, culturally, we tend to just be like a few years downstream from them and, and people will see like positive and negative aspects of, of things that sort of mm. become huge in America and decide that that's the way forward in Britain because, you know, everything that happens in America has to happen here five years down the line. Um, I wanted to I wanted to ask, though, actually, because you sort of allude to this in the book a little bit without like, going deeply into it, and I wanted to get your take, was um, one of the things, so you mentioned that one of the things that sort of at least seems that people believe has worsened race relations is this uh, is like a lot of the importation of black lives matter and identity mm. politics. Um, and, and I feel like that that's definitely one aspect of it. But the other thing that I think it, that we sort of severe, have severely lacked over the past um, sort of 10 or 15 years, especially basically since 2008 and since the Tories came in in 2010, was some of the funding cuts to local services and mm. like local community groups um, were one of the things that suffered, that they suffered the most um, as a result of austerity. And that one of the things that I think we lack now in trying to build communities is those, the, those fun, the funding for like local sports teams, youth groups, mm -hmm. um, you know, village fairs, like all like, you know, town, town events, things like that, that, that sort of got cut back significantly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think that when you look at the conservative liberal Democrat coalition, I didn't really see that as an authentically conservative government. It was more sort of classical liberalism, which was quite hyper-individualistic. And I think for me, the big society, it was called the big society, wasn't it? It was more yeah. like a big con, let's be absolutely honest. <laughs> and I think that the sort of civic associ associations that you're referring to, you sort of local football teams, talking about town hall events as well. Um, 
even things like food festivals mm. just take that for example you'll be surprised how effective they are in bringing different people together who may not necessarily have very high rates of social interaction in day-to-day -day life and, and and i think for me if you want that to be sort of healthy fixtures of civic life in a town or in a city or, or in a village as well um you need to have the structure in place that that just can't that simply can't happen overnight and then that just becomes sort of, sort of stuff that ha ha takes place on a weekly basis it needs to have that initial funding to really get those kind of initiatives going and, and i don't think that the coalition government at the time really understood that they just thought that if we sort of roll back the state in a way and we stop funding for this that the community will step in and some communities did try to do that but I think almost in a way you're exploiting the goodwill of many working class people by doing that, who have to actually take money out of their own pocket or they have to do things for free. Now, of course, you know, volunteering is, is, is an activity which, which should be highly respected in society. But if you're talking about these sorts of initiatives and projects, Josh, that needs funding. And, and, and I think that that was one of the things about austerity. I, I don't think that it was... The, the austerity is no friend of community spirit put, put it that way that that much is clear as day and i think that if you want to have those projects if you want them to become embedded in society they have to have a healthy level of initial funding and then over time they may become more self-sufficient people become more involved in sustaining those projects so organically over time they can be sustained um but for me i, I think that austerity more generally i think it is it, it it quite destructive for many um, working class communities across the country and I think that more generally when you're talking about the civic life of local communities I don't think I, and I still don't think the conservatives really get it mm. I mean if truth be told they don't really I mean, how often do they really talk about you know sort of a sort of making wholesome um, speeches about family community and nation of course we should value policy delivery but they can't even they don't even deliver wholesome speeches on those uh, <laughs> you know the, the, those sort of um, how do you say that those arenas of belonging um, you could say so I, I think that the Conservative Party it looks like they're going to be dumped out of government um, in the not too distant future I think it needs a serious period of introspection and it's something that I talked about I talked about uh, in the book that it, the Conservative Party for me it, it remains beholden to corporate interests um, and that there's still too many free marketeers for my liking in the party. And I think that free market fundamentalism poses a threat to family, community and nation. And I think we saw that well and truly with Liz uh, Truss's very brief and disastrous spell as prime minister. Yeah, I'm, I'm baffled by the fact that she's now back giving speeches Indeed. and like claiming that she was right. And I'm like, man, like just the tiniest bit of self-awareness just just go away for five years even Theresa may is coming back mm. now being like oh you know and woken proud yeah and 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 claiming that she yeah woken pride and just this idea that she she was a great prime minister she wasn't she was mm. she was dragged from all sides of her party she was an ineffective leader she was indecisive she couldn't like figure out what the direction what like there's so many critiques it's, yeah it's... Jo josh for me i think it's an overcorrection i mean this was the lady who organized the go home vans in yeah. local neighborhoods and yeah. now she's woke and proud and i think in a way you have conservatives who they govern in a very controversial way 
And I think later on in their career, they seek to overcompensate for that time by now being you know, sort of overly socially liberal in a sense, now saying that they're woke and proud. And yeah, I find it all a bit embarrassing if truth be told. Yeah. And it, well, I feel like I'd probably, I feel like it's probably closer to what she actually believed the whole time was. Mm. And then the, the way they govern, as you said, is, is very, it's very dead cat. It's very um, Linton Crosby, mm. you know, like here's the wedge issue. This is the, it's yeah. like the, the Trump Trumpification, or if you want to use that word of, of politics, where you find the wedge and it's like, well, you're either like, we're going to make this extreme policy and you're either mm. with us or you're against us. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very divisive, very divisive way to approach politics. Yeah, and 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 we see the the and we see the consequences of it in like the increase in polarization in in Britain, and and it is it's and and I well I say the increase in polarization. I think the polarization is mostly on the very loud minorities in Twitter of, of yeah, the extreme true. voices. That's a good point. Um, but you know we still see it happening, and you see you see it escalated probably by the media, and and like it. it it blows me away that, to your point about about the Conservative Party, that you know no one seems to be interested in building, in saying, look, we're we are one country, mm. you know, or well, four countries, but one country, yeah. four home nations, <laughs> yeah, yeah, four home nations, um, for however long that lasts, but four home nations, um, and and you know that we share a massive amount of of cultural heritage and and, and values, and that we should try and build something where everyone can be proud to live in the country that you know we all exist in. And I I just it blows me away that no one seems to grasp, or at least at the minute, no one seems to grasp it. Because I wanted to ask you about Keir Starmer. And sure. So. And reading your book, there was a lot of moments where I was just like, "Is this why he keeps posing with the flag?" Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, do you think he's the guy to sort of take the take one of our political parties away from this like very identity driven politics? Can I only live in hope, mate. That that, that that's the truth. Of it. I, I think there is an opportunity to for a Labour government, a potential Labour government, to bridge those cultural divides. Josh, um, immigration, for example, I, I think there's many parts of the country who believe that the current levels of immigration are just too high. Um, the late, the, the last net migration figures, uh, I, th I think it was 606,000, which is unprecedented. Uh, but, but I think that, that there's that there's a bridge to be, you know, to be made there um, in terms of immigration. We want to have a dynamic economy where we are able to address labour market shortages uh, if they are a matter of urgency. Mm -hmm. But I think that more generally, I think over time, we can reduce our dependency on immigration by investing more in our own domestic workforce, irrespective of people's race, ethnicity or faith. Um, and, and I think that investing in domestic skills, um, providing high quality apprenticeships and um, trying to raise educational standards in local communities. I think we need to in uh, bursaries and scholarships as well, bursaries, especially for the NHS and social care. I think we need to move in, in that direction. I think it very, it'd be very popular with many traditional leftist voters if Labour was to adopt that approach. And I think over time, you'd see that the country would wean itself off immigration dependency in, in particular sectors. And I think the reality is when you look at agriculture, for example, 
Josh, that much of the work is absolutely backbreaking. Mm-hmm. And the idea that you're going to get people like you're going to get urban Brits and then maybe bust them into remote agricultural areas to do this backbreaking work, <laughs> I don't want to see that. So we need to talk about automation. What's the role of AI and nanotechnology in um, fostering a more efficient and productive agricultural sector? We can have those discussions and they're important discussions to be had. Um, I, th- I think there's issues surrounding race, for example, where we can say, you know, that there are improvements to be made in terms of the labour market. People with traditionally um, English-sounding names, if you call it that, they tend to do, they tend to fare better than um, people with culturally distant names. Even when you control for skills, um, job experience, um, academic record, so I think that we can talk about, you know, how do we how do we address that? For example, maybe we can expand name-blind applications across different sectors. Mm. Um, so at least more people with those ethnically, or rather culturally distant names who may come from ethnic minority backgrounds, they can at least get to the interview stage at least, so then they can prove themselves in person to a, to a, to a potential employer. Um, I think in terms of health, for example, we have disparities where black British mothers are four times more likely to die at childbirth compared to their um, white peers. We should at least look into that. We should investigate that. And I'm supportive of that. Um, I think with, you know, in terms of policing, stop and search, as you know, is, is deeply controversial. I think that at least local police forces, they can engage more with local communities to say, well, actually, this is why we think this is a very useful policing instrument. We're trying to combat this particular um, form of crime. And we feel that this could be an effective instrument to do that. So in a way, you're, you're cultivating public consent, in a sense, and you're, you're helping to strengthen trust between um, the police and local communities that they serve. And so I think all those debates are very important. And I think in a way, you're helping to bridge cultural divides by taking that kind of approach. So, and I think that a, a mature social democratic party could be well positioned to bridge those divides. But I think Sakir Starmer may well face his internal challenges, but that will require him to adopt a very robust form of leadership and actually you know, face up to the reality that there are tribal activists within the left who I think in my view, they would undermine um, the cultivation of a mature social democratic politics for modern Britain. Mm. Yeah, so this sort of brings us nicely to Jeremy Corbyn. Okay. Because I I was personally a big fan. Um, okay. I, for, for a number of reasons, like uh, the, the one I always say to people is because um, I asked them what percentage of the the MPs in Parliament do they believe are beholden to their donors and to 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 big corporate interests, and the answer is normally like ninety percent, ninety five percent. I don't know what the actual number is, but that's like the perception that people get. And I'm like, I could tell he wasn't one of them, and that's why I liked him. Um, and I thought that the 2017 manifesto in particular. Um, the economic side of it in the way they he wanted to like actually invest in the country i was like britain needs that like our our infrastructure Mm. is crumbling um i think there's a lot of industries that could benefit from um either some form of nationalization or we have to strip the state out of it and regulate the industry you got to do one or the other because at the minute we have some horrible form of of this this neoliberalism where we have taxpayers funding 
um, public services where it gets shipped out often on a no big contract to a private corporation the money shoots offshore it gets like little bits scraped off by lawyers and accountants mm. and like secretive banking institutions and different shell companies all by the time it gets to the actual public service it's a bare bones stripped back thing compared to what we're paying absolutely for. in that sense we're kindred spirits there's, there's many things that i see in the british economy that it, it actually makes me quite sad um, if truth be told, I think th I think the railways is an example where the, the rail fares just keep um, they keep rising. Um, it's quite eye watering amounts, and uh, the, the, ultimately, it's it's British citizens who are feeding into the coffers of the Dutch state. Essentially, that is, uh, and, and I think that you see many examples of that where you know the, the, the ordinary British people are parting with such la large amounts of their uh, the, their own money and it's going directly into the coffers of the dutch state or the french state mm. for example and and i think that how can our political establishment be so comfortable with that i find it absolutely shocking i, I think with jeremy corbyn um, there are many of his economic proposals which are actually quite popular um and, and i think there's a debate to be had in terms of you know you know how do we knock down um stubborn class-based barriers we i still don't think we talk about social class enough um on the left i think that's a common complaint among traditional leftists mm -hmm. uh, i think the issue with i think the main issue with jumping there were many issues with jeremy corbyn and it's something i touched on in the book i think that you know if you're a party that was responsible for bringing in the equality act and then you breach that equality act on three different fronts on three fronts over um, complaints of anti-Semitism within your party. I think it really weakens your sort of moral standing from an anti-discrimination um, point of view. I'm a member of a religious minority and I, I do think that um, I was very concerned about the way complaints surrounding anti-Semitism were handled under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. I, I think it, from a more cultural point of view, I remember that it, 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 Corbyn tweeted once about how Labour were the only party that could be trusted to unlock the talent and potential of ethnic minority people. And I just think, I just found that very patronising. For me, hyper-paternalistic nonsense in my view. I think that if, if you want to talk about what helps um, young people to maximise the potential, belonging to a loving and stable home would be right up there. Um, a community that cares about their progress, um, high quality public services, especially schooling. Um, but ultimately, a lot of that, it, it's ultimately about, you know, the kind of home that they live in and the kind of community um, which they're part of. And I think that, it, I, I think that really, <clears throat> what that showed was that it's, it's a line of thinking, which in my view was quite patronising and condescending. And, and it'd be quite alienating for many aspirational and traditional-minded ethnic minority voters. But I think one of the main issues with Corbyn's leadership, I think Brexit, the fudging of Brexit was a very serious problem. But I think more, more generally, my biggest complaint really was that he was far too cosy with, in my view, quite questionable activists. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so that would be whether it's all racial identity politics or religious tribalism, I think that he was far too close to those kind of actors. And I think that if you're going to be a part, if you're going to be a leader of the Labour Party, you want to have a strong emphasis on social cohesion. If you fraternise with questionable activists, 
whether they may be racial identitarians or Islamists, you're going to run into problems mm. and people are going to question your ability to keep a society together if you are too cozy with those kind of groups and individuals. Mm. Yeah, I mean, personally, one of the things that frustrated me was the way he responded to um, the questions about the IRA. Um, like I, I, mm. I really don't like getting into the, the Israel-Palestine discussion because I don't know. I I just don't know. Well, Josh, that's a, that's a point, right? The 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 the, the, ma the amount of energy being put into talking about the Israeli and I don't want to trivialize these conflicts and geopolitical tensions, but the 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 amount of um, internal energy within the Labour Party that was focused on the Israeli Palestinian conflict or tensions between India and Pakistan over territorially disputed Kashmir. I'm sorry, but your average British voter, they're going to think about things far closer to home. It's going to be about, you know, the availability of well-paid jobs, employment security, um, quality of healthcare, education standards in schools, um, sort of antisocial behaviour mm. in their local neighbourhood. Um, right now, it would be the cost of living crisis, which is affecting many people across the country. So I, I just think when you look at back then, how those foreign territorial disputes, how much focus there was on them within the Labour Party. I just think many British voters may just came to the, con they came to the conclusion, well, they don't really seem to care much about the, the bread and butter problems in everyday life. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, I, I just because the problem is looking at it from for, i don't know maybe it's different for people who haven't lived through like somewhere mm. that's like a, a a state with decades of history of, of violence mm. and, and conflict and a divided community that i look at the way people in in britain talk about the northern ireland conflict mm. and i'm like you have no idea what you're talking about so i really try to refrain from yeah. getting like involved in in like discussions about yeah. you know I don't and, don't, and don't get me wrong that's a very important issue in terms of because there's still tensions in northern ireland which, which need to be addressed i know we had the good friday agreement that was a very important development but there are still underlying tensions within northern ireland as we know to my understanding stormman is, is currently not in operation no, no. Uh, really no. so i i think and, and those are important issues and that for me that's more of an important issue than uh, israel palestine because that that for me is is, a, is an issue that's very close to home for us mm. um and, and and i just think with with the with the india pakistan tensions over territorially disputed Kashmir, that has the potential to cause significant tensions within South Asian communities, especially in places such as Leicester. We saw last year with the, with the Leicester disorders, mm. a, a watershed moment in British community relations. So I think that with the Labour Party, you have to focus on the bread and butter issues that we've talked about, sort of things, cost of living, education, healthcare, housing would be another one as well. We have a housing crisis in many parts. It's a nationwide crisis, let's be honest. Um, there's a report by Centre for Cities that says that we have a backlog in the region of four million homes. It's absolutely astonishing. Um, and, and on top of that, what, what we really need to do is, what are the kind of values and goals in life that brings people together? And I think I think that the left can definitely should be in the business of talking about that because actually cohesive communities they're more likely to be productive, 
That's the truth of it. And they're probably more likely to have lower levels of crime as well over time if they strengthen in terms of um, social trust. I think if you focus on those kind of issues, I think that they'll have a really good chance of winning quite a handsome parliament. They may well win a handsome parliamentary majority anyway, but they'll have a very clear programmatic identity that many British people could buy into. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're definitely right there. Um, so I wanted to bring up this quote. I wanted to get your take on it because it was something that, that caused a lot of um, controversy and a lot of sort of reaction on Twitter from people. Um, it was from Eddie Dempsey, um, the RMT mm. activist. Um, and I think it was in March of this year. Or was it last year? Anyway, he said, too many in the Labour Party have made a calculation that there's a certain section at the top end of the working class in alliance with people they calculate from ethnic minorities and liberals that's enough to get them into power. Um, whatever you think of people that turn up for those Tommy Robinson demos or other marches like that, the one thing that unites those people, whatever bigotry is going on, is their hatred of the liberal left and they are right to hate them. I wanted to see what you thought of, of that quote generally or if you'd heard it. Eddie makes a good point, in, in my opinion. Now, of course, I mean, I wouldn't be in the business of trivialising um, the level of racism within the English... If English Defence League was established in my hometown of Luton um, shortly after the Butchers of Basra demonstrations. And for me, I think, I think the issue here is more about how the left abandoned English identity. I, th I think that's a big point. And I think actually the, the left could play a very important part in cultivating a civic Englishness, which which really celebrates England's um, heritage, history, and the contributions now that people from a diversity of backgrounds make towards English, um, social, cultural, and economic life. And the, and the reality is, Labour abandoned the St George's flag. I'm sure you remember Emily Thornberry's uh, snobbish tweet. I mean, Rochester, uh, you know, the, the, the of a property which is draped in English flag uh, in um, uh, St George's flags, and had a uh, had a white van um, in the driveway. And I think it really showed you the cultural disconnect, um, in a way, between. Uh, sort of social liberals in the Labour Party who may well be may well represent North London constituencies, and sort of, sort of white English families have voted for Labour over generations, and, and and so I think the point that Eddie made, that Eddie Dempsey made there is is that instead of looking down on on those people, you know maybe maybe engage with their economic and cultural anxieties have a conversation with them in good faith and i'm sure that'll be reciprocated now in some cases it might not be reciprocated then you say fair enough Listen, i've tried my best here but you know it's confrontational adversarial attitude i don't want any more part of it but i think i think the reality is and england um, labor have got a by-election which i think they can win in tamworth now at the moment they're some way behind the conservative party but there's an opportunity there to really make headway in Middle England. And that uh, Tamworth is very classic, traditional Middle England. And I think just appreciate, just an appreciation of people and voters who actually value their English identity. And valuing your English identity does not make you racist. I'm just gonna make that point, you know, loud and clear. I, I think that would be a, that would be a major step forwards um, in a cultural capacity if, if Labour was to do that. Yeah, yeah, I think it really struck me. So I was I was back home in Northern Ireland with uh, my girlfriend, who's who's English, and mm. she was stunned 
at the amount of, of Union flags everywhere in in the protestant parts of of belfast and northern ireland like she was like i have never seen so many union flags there's like not like from sussex like you know it's mm. like english heartlands like and and she, she had this weird thing where i think a lot of people maybe not her specifically but a lot of people are like almost embarrassed of the flag oh, i think embarrassed is a good it's, it's, it's i think it's a suitable term to use and i think that's actually a shame um, I remember looking at the celebrations ahead of the coronation of King Charles III in uh, Castle Doug, um, which you know is, is a I just quite it's, it's, it's a Protestant part of Northern Ireland, right, which has a very strong British identity, and I, I think there it's, it's it's those you know maybe your average English person might go on there and thought, wow, God, it's amazing how the English flag is just it's so it's so proudly displayed, and and I think for me um obviously northern ireland has has its own you know very specific context but i do think one of the things that really holds back northern ireland is a lack of a continued lack of catholic protestant cooperation in various areas of life i think northern ireland is a is a place which has plenty of potential but and even though we have the good friday agreement um i think um, josh you could probably educate me on this to be honest but the school system there is overall is quite segregated along religious yeah. lines no it still is uh, now i know that a lot of parents feel that that's their right you know that that's their parental right to send their children to to those to those um sort of um schools which are attached to a specific denomination but how healthy is that for civic life in Northern Ireland in the future? And I think there's a debate to be had um, on that. But I think in terms of, you know, we have to talk about British identity and English identity a bit separately, because I think ethnic minorities generally, they gravitate quite, quite strongly towards British identity and symbols of Britishness. But I think that in terms of English identity, I'd make this point, I really do think that the left abandoned the St. George's flag. And unfortunately, is organisations like the EDL um, almost took ownership over it. And, and they have to make sure that never happens again. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, a lovely place to leave it. I, I hope that that someone can can bring the, the values that you've discussed together and, and sort of advocate for a, a left-wing party that is, yeah, willing to acknowledge that there's progress there's progress still to be made that but that we're in a very strong position as a country in mm -hmm. terms of you know uh, acceptance and sort of celebration of our of our own diversity of of different you know backgrounds of people in this mm -hmm. country i think it's it's a it's a shame when people think that we are like exceptional in that we are that we reject a lot of these minorities when um, I think it was that there was that quite ridiculous, but also very good HSBC mm. ad where um, Richard Iodi was talking about how, like, you know, we drive, we like, we drive German, you know, our favorite like footballers mm. come from like um, South America and uh, Africa. And, you know, was talking about all of the, the bits from the whole world that we celebrate and enjoy here. And I think that was a, a perfect expression of, of what, britain could celebrate and and hopefully will in the future so yeah man um is there anything you want to plug aside from the book beyond no Grievous? i mean i'd just like to you know i'd like to thank you for having me josh i really enjoyed the conversation and i hope that um your viewers enjoyed it as well and and, and I, of course i naturally i hope that they buy the book as well yeah well it comes highly recommended i really really enjoyed thank it you. 
Um, so yeah, thanks very much, man. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for making it right the way to the end of the podcast. I love that you tuned in this long. Do me a favor, hit subscribe because 80% of you bastards are not subscribing, but you're watching my videos. See you next time.